0: Hey everybody, my name is Rob Shear, and I'm the founder of a national nonprofit called Comfort Cases. I'm also an advocate for children in our foster care system, a public speaker, an author of a book, A Forever Family, but most importantly, I am the father of four amazing children.
1: Hi, I'm Dana McKay, and I saw Rob on The Ellen Show, and when I realized his organization was based right here where I live, I knew I had to get involved. I'm also a social media consultant, a radio host, a podcast producer, and a mother of two children.
0: See, our country's foster care system is shattered, and this podcast is about how we as a community can come together to bring about change, changing the system, and changing the lives of children in care.
1: Welcome to the Fostering Change podcast.
0: Well, good afternoon, everybody. This is Rob and Dana, and we're here at Fostering Change. And I'm so excited to have today's special guest, happens to be a friend of mine. Um, you know, Shannon and I met, um, It's gosh, it's been over a year ago. She, you know, all through social media. Um, and it just so happens that we have not only became friends on social media, we've actually become friends. So we um, sit on a cohort's bored that we get to see each other every other month um, in freezing Minnesota. And so, Shen, welcome.
2: Thanks for having me, Rob. I'm so excited to be here with you and Dana.
0: Well, I'm excited too. And just to let everybody know a little bit about Shen, um, she is an author, an author of The the Garbage Bag Suitcase. Um, I've actually read the book. It is an amazing book. Um, and I hear that you're actually starting, you're already writing your second book.
2: Oh, Rob. <laughs> the thing? I mean, after you write one book, everyone wants to know when the second one's coming. It's like children. It's like they just won't give it up. But yeah, so I, I've been working actually on the second book. I started writing in the midst of writing the first book, which you shouldn't do, but i um, I really wanted to have this conversation about not how do we just share our stories about trauma and overcoming, but what is the real work involved with actually taking a look at yourself and doing that personal development work and beginning to heal yourself from your own personal trauma so that you can really be that positive, stable adult for the other people in your life. And so this book is really exploring how do we sort of jump down that rabbit hole of learning to do that deep heart work of healing.
0: Well, I, you know, first of all, I have to tell you, you said the rabbit hole. And for those of you who has ever seen your book, um, and the cover mm-hmm. of your book, the, your the rabbit that's on the front cover of it, um, which was one of the only things that you had. And so, you know, your story, I, I believe that we make change by sharing our stories, um, and and that truly has been something that you've done. I'd love if you don't mind. I'd love to talk a little bit about your book um, and where where you got the courage, or we, as I say to people, the grit to be able to write that story because it it was really, you know, I know my book when was painful when I read it and you know writing my book, but reading your book, it was just um, it was painful. It, it you went into a lot of places that most people don't go
2: half years of writing and I think that's a really important thing because I think there's a lot of people out there like you said with stories in them and stories that can promote healing for others which is so crucial and critical but what I caution everybody is that that was a four and a half year process for me from the day I said I think I need to do this to it actually coming out because sometimes I had to just stop. It was so painful. It was so difficult when you have a an editor saying, hey, what color was that car that you were pushed out of? You know, those are memories that I had really locked away tightly. And for me, in my specific instance, uh, this was something, you know, I joke that it was my own personal coming out party because... I didn't tell anyone. I hadn't told my husband this story. You know, we had been together 17 years before I told him about this story and, and my existence before, during, and after care. And so for me, it, it was painful on twofold, but I really thought I would had it locked away and I would never need to tell it. So coming to terms with just accepting that, but it was really the clients that I was working with in our day-to-day, in our criminal defense office where I realized they weren't in a position to sell their story. And then for really lack of a better word, I had this sort of privilege that I could tell my story if I chose to. And I almost felt like by not sharing the story, I was causing the conversation to stall, right? Like how could I ask people to invest um, in these kids, in this problem, if I wasn't honest about my own connection to the problem. So in other words, I couldn't just sit on the sidelines anymore and say, this is something we should care about. I had to tell people why we had to care about it. And as sad as it is, sometimes the only way you can do that is through story and sharing some really dark, painful things. You know, I tell people, everyone wants to know what happened when they see a car accident, right? They're so curious and it's the gossiping part of it. And I thought, um, the only way I'd be willing to share people that part of my story is if they would stick around in the book so we could talk about what we could actually do about it. So if you were going to be willing to, like, dive down my rabbit hole of the things that happened to me and how I came out the other end, awesome. But I'm going to ask you to do something in return, and that's get involved and, and make a change in the system. Because I think you and I have had this conversation numerous times. For as long ago as we were both in the system, not much has changed. And that for me is really the hardest pill to swallow in this whole thing.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. You know, it's I you know, when I when I first met you and you and I went to the cohorts meeting and you know, I really got to talk about um what's going on in the system. And I will tell you, I I was living in my bubble, you know, yeah, I've written my book and, you know, I talked to to other people about the system, but it was an eye opener to me to realize that nothing has changed in the system. Nothing. We are, we're, we're tearing kids apart from families that we've made a decision that are, you know, whether it's the lack of of you know someone has neglect or you know I was that guy who walked into that meeting saying families need to be apart families you know kids need to get safe kids and now I'm realizing no families need support to heal so children aren't taken away.
2: Well, absolutely. I think you know we just live in a society where we want there to be a bad guy. Right? We want to just point a finger at a bad guy because it's so easy to do. It's them, it's the system, it's the government, it's these people over here. If they would just get their act together, we would all be better. And at some point, we just have to say, how do we heal and move forward? Right? Like, Why do we have to cast blame? Why do we have to point fingers? You know, it's so funny. I was just watching this movie this weekend on Amazon, The Florida Project. Which had sort of been on my list to see, and I have it. And and to be honest, I sort of stay away from movies about foster care and adoption because I find them to just be um, very inaccurate, right? Like everybody wants this Annie, Disney ending to everything. And, And frankly, it's just not how it works in the real world. And so I usually stay away, but everyone had encouraged me to watch this movie, The Florida Project. And as I watched it, I just thought, this is what we're doing wrong. It's so easy for us to stand by and judge a mother who's trying. She she may not be doing a good job, but she's trying. And it's so easy for us to say, well, she's just not trying hard enough. And we're going to remove this child and everything will be better. And for me, standing on the side of it, knowing that that's not the answer, it's a really hard place to be. And it's a hard place to get other people to wrap their mind around.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree with you on that. I I agree that, you know, it's really hard for people to understand that, um, and I hate to say this, but we have failed the family. We failed the family. Yeah. It's not failing the kids as much as we have failed the family. You know, one of the questions I have, you know, since your book has come out and, you know, it, it, it was, it took you four years to write it. And, and you know, and I, by the way, I still see that it's, uh, you just did recently something where the book was all over the world, which I absolutely love that part. But there's something <laughs> on your social media page that I happen to bring up quite often. And I would love for you to touch base. And that's the four thousand six hundred.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So this was actually started, I I saw an article that Time Magazine did maybe about a year and a half ago. Um, A state senator was interested about kids missing from foster care in the state of Kansas, and she sort of wasn't getting the answer she was looking for. You know, everyone was sort of just telling her, oh, no, we know where all these kids are. And she just started digging and investigating and, and Time Magazine eventually did an article about the 86 missing kids from the state of Kansas. What was so interesting about it is that we have federal rules and like legislation about how if kids go missing from care, how they're supposed to be reported. And what we really found is that agencies as a whole have really found lots of loopholes that they call the kids runaways, that they sort of can make all of these excuses on why they don't have to report the kids missing. And so essentially what happens is that the kids go unreported. In other words, if one of your children went missing, what would you do to find them, right? And, and so I always bring it back to sort personal level on a parent is, you know, we would, there would be a thousand social media posts. Of course, we'd be on the phone with everyone we knew, right? We'd be on the media doing all this stuff to find our missing child. And with Kids in Care, we just categorize them as a runaway without any real information that they are runaways other than maybe they've ran before and we found them and that they don't report those kids to the Center of Missing and Exploited Kids. So in the state of Kansas that started this investigation, they only had four children in their state that were reported to the Center for Missing and Exploited Children, although they knew they had 86 kids in care who had never been reported. So nobody was ever looking for them. And so it just got me thinking about, this is just the state of Kansas. What about all the other states? And in truthfulness, um, I ended up being joined with a really good friend of mine, an advocate out of uh, Toronto, Marnie Grunman, who was a kid who was trafficked from CARE. She grew up on the streets. Um, It was, in fact, a prostitute who saved her life. She goes into great detail about that story. And she was really interested in in helping me make people understand. And so what the federal government was able to tell us um, after months and months of digging is that they estimated about 1% of the foster care population was missing with their whereabouts unknown. Now, that was their estimates, which is how we equated 4,600 kids go missing every year. And so why we chose that number, the 4,600 in county movement, because so many kids disappear and nobody knows. And what we do know is that those kids end up in sex trafficking. They make up a big population of the human sex trafficking. And as we started that movie movement and began doing movies and videos about it on social media, it's how many parents were contacting us, that that they knew their child had been taken away in foster care, but they couldn't find any trace of them, Um, that they had seen pictures of their child, um, internet black sites and nobody would listen to them and they were told by police officers not to worry about it and so we know that it's happening and what i think is so frustrating for me is that it seems nobody cares
0: yeah that's that's exactly that's exactly how i feel as well i feel like nobody cares i feel like you know you turn on the news whatever news outlet you decide to watch right. and there is nothing nothing on the news about these 4,600. I mean, these kids should be on billboards. They should be on milk cartons. You know, I mean, we all know that 80% of human trafficking for children or for kids are in foster care. So, you know, why we have, as a country, why we just, why are we not talking about this more?
2: Well, and i got to tell you, Rob, is that I think it really boils down to our judgment and how we like to label people. And you know this just from your own experience and care, right, for yourself and for your own children, is that as soon as we label a child, then suddenly we have to do less things. So in the case of foster kids, most of them just get labeled as runaways, which means what? That they're problem, they don't listen, they're disrespectful, they don't follow the rules, right? And so we don't need to look for those kids. Right We should be spending our time and energy on kids with real families who need real support. That's who we should be supporting, not kids who are already vulnerable, who maybe make bad choices because they're unsafe. And The other problem with just labeling a child a runaway is is that you begin to label them as a problem instead of saying, "Would a child really run away from a safe and stable living environment?
0: Yeah. See,
2: that's the thing. There is something to say that kids sometimes run away because it's an unsafe living situation, right? And so we don't want to talk about those things. And then we hear news articles of foster parents who have abused children, right? And that this has gone on for decades, or foster parents who have been accused of sex trafficking and all of these horrendous things. And we say, that's a one-off. That's an outlier. How do you know? How do you know what's happening in that home, whether it's a biological parent or a foster parent? We have to be involved. We have to have kids who have voices. And if the system isn't going to protect these kids, then we surely as community members have an obligation to protect them. And we just seem to continue to fail them and act as if it's somebody else's responsibility.
0: Yeah, and and you're right. We do. We act like it's somebody else's responsibility. Let the government take care of them. You know, let the, the state, you know, take care of them. But in, at the end of the day, these are our children that we all should be investing in. You know, it was I yesterday I was watching the news and I heard about that young boy who um, who shot and killed his mom and his sister and had mm-hmm. also shot the father. And the first thing I said to Reese was something was going on in that home. And he says why do you s-? he says, "Why do you say that and I said, because i just I just find it hard to fathom that all of a sudden a child wakes up in the morning and says, Today I'm just going to shoot my family, and I feel like there's so much that was going on in that boy's life again i'm not I'm not blaming anyone, so all of the the name haters that are going to reach out to me on social media and say that i'm no <laughs> what i what I'm trying to say is that I feel like so many other times that I've seen throughout our country where we've had young kids shooting or stabbing or running away, I don't feel like that we get into the root cause of why did it happen? Why did it happen? What got us to that point where a child feels that that is their only outlet?
2: Well, I think you're hitting on a, a good question, and I would actually just push it a step further, which is we say all the time it's not what's wrong with you, but it's what ha- what's happened to you. So why don't we ask that question more? What's happened to that boy? What's happened to him? And I ask that question of just about everything. When something doesn't make logical sense to me, I begin saying, what's happened here? Why would a child walk into any school and start shooting? What's happened to them, right? And all this is is tactical empathy. It's just understanding that there's more to the story. And I say the same thing on the lens towards my own life. What happened to my own mother that has caused these things to occur? I can answer that now as an adult. I can see things that I couldn't see when I was five and six and eight and 13, right? But when we begin asking what's happened to that person, why would that person use drugs with their child in the room? When you ask that question and you begin to understand the pain that another human being is going through, it's really easy to see why they make the decisions they make. You may not like the decisions. But when you can understand why a decision has been made, it's a little easier to reach out and want to help somebody. Because I absolutely agree with you. A a boy does not just wake up one day and say, I want to kill my entire family. Something has happened, and we have missed the warning sign. And it's a real lesson to us to say, how can we do better next time?
0: Yeah, you know, and, and so what do you think we should do? I mean, what do you think we should do? What do you think that we as a community, what, first of all, it's two-part question. Where are we failing and what can we do?
2: Um, it's a two-part question with a one-part answer, which is we have to address trauma at its core. So when I first decided to tell my story, I thought foster care was the core because I saw so many correlations, Right. Um, The percentage of foster youth who went to prison, for example, the percentage of foster youth who are homeless, this seems like a root cause to a lot of other social things I care about, right? The number of foster youth who become addicts, like the numbers are out of control. In all of those cases, it's over 80%. So... I originally started sharing my stories I thought I thought foster care was root cause, and what I really began to understand is that foster care was just a housing mechanism for a lot of people with trauma that had been identified, but nothing being done about it and what I realized now is that trauma is everywhere it's a weed it's a dandelion that has gotten into everybody's yard and we sort of just want to mow over the yellow parts and not pull it out by its root and so what I've really been working on is trying to help people first understand and recognize trauma how when they see things like the opioid epidemic when they say that when they say we're building new rehabs all great things but you're not really getting to the underlying cause of What's the trauma in your community? What's going on to these individual people to make them want to use in the first place? What has happened to them, right? Just getting back to that that question. And once we begin to recognize it, what we really can say is, well, how come some people like Robin Shun have this grit, right, as you call it, or this resilience, or this pull themselves up by the bootstraps? And what we really have realized through science is that we actually know that that's a learned behavior and that some people have learned that behavior and some people have not, that we can actually teach that to everybody at any age. And when we begin doing that work, we can begin healing families, we can begin healing communities, and we can begin seeing a change. But we have to get to that tipping point of saying, We're not just saying you've made poor choices and so you no longer deserve hope and recognition. We're saying you've made poor choices and are you ready to do something different?
0: Do you think that that starts in the school level? Do you think that we. I think it
2: starts everywhere. Everywhere. I think we can. I think we can begin at any age doing this work. I think we can uh, begin doing this work in elder homes if we want. I think we can begin doing this work in, in our police community relationships. I think we can begin doing this work in ER centers. I think we can begin this work in school systems. We can begin doing this work in our own families. Many of us are in families right now in relationships where people have gone through difficult things and we tend to brush it under the rug. We don't help people with their personal development. We don't take individuals' personal development seriously. We don't ask people, how are you doing on that? How are you How are you working through that grief, that loss? What's happening there? Those are all topics we're taught to ignore and not talk about. Know their family secrets, and they should be held over here. And what I'm really hoping that I see in our society with things like the Me Too movement is, there's nothing off the table for us to talk about, Yeah. right? I mean, if Me Too taught me anything, it's we can talk about, we are capable of having these really difficult conversations that don't always have easy answers. We can talk about it and we can no longer just keep it as a secret that people can feel shame with. And the more that we talk about this, the more that people are working on themselves and in empowering relationships and not feeling isolated, the more chance we have at healing and really building what I consider to be trauma-resilient communities.
0: Yeah, I, I I'm going to tell you. I literally and Dana, by the way, I, you haven't had much to say because I'm I, just I'm listening. I'm listening. I, I could I could literally Shen talk to you all day, and I think that that this is definitely going to be something that we need to look at even more episodes because I think that for me, from what I what I what I experience, what I see, what I hear, and here's a good example. I know of a young boy who is – he's about three years before he actually is going to age out of the system, and um, he's gone through some major trauma in his life Um, from the time he came in the system, out of the system, in the system, out of the system. And I was talking to a social worker just not long ago um, in a meeting I was at at the um, Child and Family Services, and I made a comment about how kids, you know, needing therapy, how we need to address the trauma within their life. And I was told by this social worker that it's not required. And, um, I, 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 you know, as we're ending this, this, this segment of our, our podcast, I want, I want to know, what do you think about that when, when a child who has entered the system, by the way, as soon as you enter the system, boom, trauma, um, um, You know, you're taken from your family no matter what anybody wants to define their family as trauma. Do you not feel that that it should be a requirement that these children go through some type of of trauma-informed therapy?
2: Of course. Okay. Listen, I can tell you that I just worked with a group of nurses who are working with patients uh, with early onset dementia and Alzheimer's. And they became interested in this idea of trauma-informed care for one simple reason, and it sort of become the mantra of my life, which is these patients began disclosing horrendous things that had happened to them in their childhood, women who had been sexually abused, men who had been sexually abused, all sorts of things. What they were finding is, is they didn't know how to help those patients' families deal with the information that was getting disclosed because these were patients who had dementia and Alzheimer's. Was it accurate information, right? There was all this stuff surrounding it. And what I, what we came through and, and we worked through a really great program with them. But here's the thing. You are going to deal with your trauma whether you want to or not, right? I tried to keep my trauma under lock and key, and I was really good at it for 25 years. I did a really great job at it. And it still seeped out in relationships I was having, whether I wanted it to or not. Relationship I couldn't have if I wanted to or not it seeped out in my work it seeped out in the way I communicated with people it was there whether I was dealing with it or not and so for us to just say that's not a requirement well then you're never gonna fix the system then you really don't care about helping and fixing people because it's a requirement because it's part of who we are yeah I will never undo This is a lifelong quest. I can never undo all the things that were done to me. What I can do is get a much better perspective. I can try to become a better human being because of it. I can try to understand it in new ways. I can try to rewire my brain for new thinking patterns, all stuff that I work on, and I'll work on the rest of my life. So don't we owe it to people to have communities that want to have people work through that and become better people or do we just want to give up and say, well, we removed you from your family and you just deserve a crappy life now because that's what it feels like.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I agree with you, and I, you know, I also hear the ones who say, oh, we removed you from your family, and now we put you with this really good family, so why are you not thankful, why are you not, what do you mean you're in a bad place, you know, what do you mean, and you're right, I mean, every single day, I have to work on the trauma that I experienced as a child, and as a young adult, and, you know, and as you said, you push it down as far as you possibly can, but you know that, you know, we're still working on it, and and we'll work on it for the rest of our lives,
2: absolutely there's no way around it and don't we deserve i want to work on it so that i can be more of that positive stable adult for somebody else you know i say me doing this work is completely selfish because every time i convince somebody to work on themselves it just makes it easier for me to work on myself right if everyone around me is doing their work and, and working on themselves it's a much easier environment to be working on myself than to be in the exact opposite environment where everybody thinks it's not that it's me. And then I'm just feeling guilt and shame and remorse for why am I such a terrible human being, which I'll be honest, was the way I felt most of my life.
0: Yeah, makes two of us. Listen, I want to thank you so much. We're running out of time. And again, you know, I would love for everybody to please make sure that you look up the Garbage Bag suitcase. This book is absolutely amazing. Um, it, it's you. You don't even have to be a kid who grew up. You know, within the system or out of the system or whatever. You, I, I guarantee you, you will get something out of this book. You will get something out of this book. Um, it is. You know, I'm not a big reader. I'm the first one to say that. But this particular book I actually read in less than two days um, because I just could not put it down. And so, Shen, I am so excited to call you my friend. I am thrilled to death that, you know, I get to see you in a couple of weeks. But um, one thing that we always do, Dana, is we end our podcast. And by the way, guys, we're going to have Shen back on on um, this podcast. I think she has a lot of information to give. I think you really need to look and find out what's going on at the 4600 and counting. Um, please make sure we're hashtagging that as well, 4600 and counting. We have to find out what's going on. And we can't just say they're, you know, in my state, for instance, they just call them a AWOL. Um, some states call them runaways. Some states, you know, we, we, we can't accept this anymore. This, this stuff status quo of these kids are quote unquote bad kids so we don't need to look for them bullshit these kids are not bad kids these are kids who have been put in bad situations and we need to be there for them and we need to fight find them but again i if everybody could please do me a big favor we're going to have the link on our on our website um through our fostering change podcast um how you can get a hold of my friend Shen how you can um get a hold of her book you know if you're looking to have someone come and speak you know when it comes to trauma resilience she is the person to go to as she said to me earlier this is her first week home and she won't be home for another full full week until October so you can tell you how busy she is but <laughs> Dana, with that, we always ask the same question, and I want to ask my friend Shen that. So what is that, my friend?
1: If you could change two things about the foster care system, what would they be?
2: Uh, That our first instinct is not just to remove kids for physical safety, but that we would also take their emotional, psychological, and social safety into account before making that decision. And secondly, that we realize that if we're going to remove a child from a home, that we're committing to support them for the rest of their lives because we support our children that are in our homes for their entire lives. And if, as a state, we're going to take over as a family, then we're committing to support that human being for the rest of their life.
0: Wow. Wow. By the way, I love those two answers, and I love that. We've never had those answers before. Right, yeah, we always
1: get such great answers, and I mean, that's perfect, and it's just so true, you know. I, I think I've said this before, and I didn't grow up in foster care, so this is all new to me learning about this, which that in itself is sad that I'm 42 years old and I'm just now really learning about what's going on with so many kids, but that, you know, we remove kids from a home as if what they're going into in foster care gives them a better chance, and in a lot of cases, it just doesn't. So, yeah, I I agree with you. That has to change.
2: Absolutely. It's the the only way we can make real differences in our community.
0: I agree with you on that. And the fact is, is how we're going to continue to do that is we need to continue to keep talking. We need to keep talking. Listen, Shen, it's been great. Thank you so much for for being on Fostering Change. I can't wait to have you back again, and um, you and I will be talking soon.
2: I look forward
0: to it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Dana and I would like to thank all of you for listening to the Fostering Change podcast.
1: You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Make sure you follow Comfort Cases on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Comfort Cases. And check out the Fostering Change blog at comfortcases.org.
0: So everybody, we want to hear your stories. So reach out to us if you would like to be a guest on the podcast. You can find me on Facebook at Rob shear Instagram at Rob underscore Scheer, and on Twitter at Rob Scheer 6.
1: And please share this podcast and leave us a review.
0: Remember, we're all part of the same community. Your zip code, it's not your community, but it's our human race. Let's all make a difference.